This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Hello and welcome back everyone to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture and how Star Trek relates to it. I am Tony Black, as always, one of your hosts and with me as always is your other host, Duncan Barrett. How are you today, Duncan? Uh, I'm not bad, Tony, I'm not bad. I'm a little bit, I feel like my brain has been slightly mind sifted at the moment because I'm right on a rather heavy deadline for the book that I'm writing at the moment so I'm kind of working around the clock with my mind in the in the Channel Islands of the World War II period so I kind of pop my head up now and then to you know kind of engage with the world outside so um you know if, if I seem a bit kind of uh dazed then uh, that'll probably be why today. It sounds uh, it sounds quite intense really I mean I'm wondering Duncan is your book about um maybe something like a terrorist attack on the uh, the Channel Islands or an alien invasion on the Channel Islands, something where maybe a brave hero has to step up and, uh, you know, save the island. You know, that would be nice. I'd, I'd, I'd love to write a book like that. I think that would be quite exciting. There, there are there are moments of heroism. I mean, I, this morning I was writing about a, a German raid, uh, which uh, was, went surprisingly well for the Germans. And this, this was right towards, you know, as you might hope since I'm on my deadline, right towards the tail end of the war. They basically already lost the war. But in a kind of effort to boost morale, they carried out this uh, extremely successful raid on uh, the Americans who were holding one of the French ports and... Uh, captured a load of prisoners, uh, took one of their ships hostage and took it back with them. So, you know, there's a bit of a bit of daring do and a bit of kind of that sort of thing. They were obviously, you know, coming from the wrong side in that instance. So uh, that, that puts an interesting spin on it. Yeah, it does. It, it, sounds, uh, it does sound particularly action-packed. It sounds like um, a kind of Hollywood movie script, you know, in the making. And the reason in I the say making, this... Absolutely. <laughs> in the making, well, absolutely. Yeah. The, the reason I say this, and do another horrendously, you know, obvious segue, is because uh, in this episode of Primitive Culture, we're going to... I'd say, you know, we, we talked about this. So I suppose we're going to have a little bit of a, a kickback and a bit of fun with this one, because we're, uh, we're going to be talking about two Star Trek episodes in particular, which have very significant ties and connections to the action movie genre of... Hollywood and two films and two episodes in particular that we're going to kind of be comparing and and discussing. The first one is uh, Starship Mine from the sixth season of uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation, and uh, from the third season of Voyager, Macrocosm. Both of which share a common DNA in that they pitch the captain of both crews against uh, an enemy where they have to basically take run around the ship with guns, defending their crew from a well. In one instance, an alien menace, and another instance, a terrorist menace. And we thought we would have a little bit of fun comparing them to the films Die Hard and Aliens. And I will leave you, dear listeners, to decide which episode <laughs> can compare to which <laughs> more accurately. But I think if you know both episodes, it's pretty obvious. This has been kind of fun, hasn't it, Duncan, to really, um, to really go back and explore some of the action movie genre. Absolutely. It's been a real, uh, real nostalgia trip for me going back and, uh, you know, working my way through the Alien films. I mean, some of which, I, you know, I've seen more recently than others. Um, watching Alien 3, actually, I hadn't seen that. I, I've never I realised I've never seen the, the kind of now, I think, accepted cut of that film is, is something called the assembly cut, which was, you know, was never screened in cinemas. So the only version of Alien 3 that I ever saw, it was I, I was far too young to see it. I saw it shortly after it, it came out, I think, on, on VHS at a friend's house. Uh, and it didn't make much of an impression on me. I, I never went back and watched it since then, despite having the kind of, you know, alien box set. I, I, I always just skipped it. But actually, I, I found that film really interesting. And the, 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 the cut that now exists, which was, um, 
I think kind of it, it, it didn't actually have the director, David Fincher's involvement, so they couldn't call it a director's cut, but it was basically an attempt to work out the cut that he would have done had he not... He, basically, he was fired from the film before... Uh, before they completed it. So um, it was kind of the, the, the cut that the director would have made and probably would have come back in and, and edited together had he not had such a horrific experience making that film that he never wanted anything to do with it ever again. So, uh, and it's a lot better than the, than the version that I remember from, you know, seeing as a, whatever it was, 10-year-old or something. <laughs> yeah, I, conf I confess I need to go back to, to that film because I, I've never had a particularly great opinion of it but that's because i've only seen the theatrical cut and i mean i'm a big david fincher fan and it doesn't feel like one of his films primarily for the reason you you know you said he was fired and it was a complicated fascinating history to alien 3 to be fair the the history behind making that film is far more interesting than the film itself uh, overall it's also just a really brutal film. I mean, actually, it's it's not it's not the ideal uh, alien film to, in terms of the action movie genre. Really, it's aliens. You know, a, the first alien film is is a kind of sort of art house horror film almost, isn't it? It's it's it, 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 you know, it's a fantastic piece of yeah filmmaking, but it's uh, it's 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 quite intricate and and sort of beautifully put together and very artful. Aliens is the real kind of uh, you, you know the kind of classic sort of eighties action spectacular uh and you know really good example of that genre i mean a really fantastic film really enjoyable a real ride to to go along with and i think that's where the kind of shock of alien 3 comes in is it's just so bleak and dark and heavy and grim and you know not only do they kill the little girl in the first five minutes there's then this lengthy autopsy scene which involves like cracking of bones and blood spurting everywhere it's a really nasty nasty film which is a bit of a shock and and, and i suppose since we're sort of talking a bit about the action movie genre and the kind of pleasures of that genre maybe part of the reason that that it, it didn't seem to work was that it kind of broke all those rules it, it kind of threw all that out the window and people weren't happy about it well, yeah and and this is the this is the interesting thing looking at this because essentially you know star trek isn't the the show that people associate with the action movie genre maybe they do more these days with the jj abrams films which certainly the first two star trek films from uh, abrams were much more on the you know action thriller adventure axis you know with a lot of the kind of stuff that that we, we're talking about in these kind of older films, whereas Star Trek Beyond was a little bit more in the style of older Trek, I guess, in many respects. But Star Trek isn't traditionally, certainly not in the shows, and certainly not in uh, the next generation and Voyager, it is known for tapping into action movie you know, heroics, which is what makes Starship Mine and, and Macrocosm a little bit unusual for their respective shows, especially for the next generation. So it's, it's really intriguing why those decisions were made for each episode and quite what what they wanted to do with Picard and Janeway and actually put them in this situation of being, you know, an analogue of, in Picard's case, John McClane from Die Hard and in Janeway's case, an analogue of um, Ellen Ripley from uh, from Alien, Aliens, etc. And it's interesting looking at the production, how writers and production staff on both of those episodes have denied specific allusions and connections to those films when, quite honestly, both... The leading actors and a lot of the rest of the crew have gone, yeah, it was basically Die Hard in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. basically Aliens, wasn't it? You know, so it's, yeah. they yeah, kind yeah. of, on the one hand, they, they, they're doing that. And on the other hand, they're being a little bit coy about it. One of the things is, you, you say it's interesting, it's Next Gen and Voyager that do this. I think it's, it's in some ways, it's more that it's Picard and Janeway. And the reason I say that is I think if you think about the other captains, you know, Captain Kirk, man of action, getting in fist fights, uh, you, you know, doing his wild karate moves off the walls. Or, you know, he's quite a physical kind of... He is a kind of action hero in a sense himself. The two-handed Kirk locked yeah. together fist to the back. That's my favourite. Absolutely. Which, which yeah. wouldn't work yeah, yeah, in the yeah. real world, would it? Like, But it works no. for Kirk. Yeah. <laughs> I prefer the kind of acrobatics off the walls. I think that, that kind of, you know, adds an extra something. You want to, you want to knock someone out. You don't just go for them. You, you bounce off something on your way to them. But uh, and actually, Cisco has some of the same moves. He has the kind of double-handed thing. You, you know, he, 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 he's pretty good in a fight. I mean, you know, he punched Q famously. Um, an archer, I think, is you know maybe not as not as physical as those two, but he, you kind of feel he can handle himself. And he, and he's not an intellectual. He's not a kind of uh, a thinker. Uh, you, you know, he's 
not whereas I suppose Picard and Janeway you know Picard's very much the diplomat the kind of measured reasonable the kind of older man um, you know, this sort of wise renaissance man character he spends a lot of time sitting around reading books Janeway is a scientist you, you know she's come to command uh, through a different kind of route also of course she's a woman so that probably kind of plays into the way they do that so I think what's interesting about these episodes is they're both kind of playing against type for those characters. And the way they do it is definitely very much through these kind of iconic references, particularly with Janeway, the kind of visual iconography of that episode, you know, the way she's sort of stripped down to that vest, she's got this huge gun. It's very much the the, the imagery is certainly of particularly aliens, I think, uh, you know, towards the end of Aliens, where Ripley goes in on her own, she goes down to, to rescue the, the young girl, Newt, and, and you know, dressed and kind of styled in, in quite a similar way to what we see with, with Janeway and Macrocosm. And I guess it's unusual for her to have a kind of, you know, an action episode like that. I think it, it, it was a change for her. And, and I think it's quite interesting if you, if you read what Kate Mulgrew was saying about it at the time. She, she was a bit sceptical about it. She sort of said, oh, God, you know, I'm going to do this action thing. And, you know, it's not really me and it's not really what I want to do. But at the same time, I think maybe it was kind of important on one level that they kind of established that, you know, that, okay, that may not be a big part of Janeway's character, but at the same time, she can handle herself. She can, she can be that person. She can be the woman of action. Because a lot of the time with her command style, it's very kind of familial. It's very much about relationships. It's very much about kind of, uh, you know, bringing people on board, resolving problems. It's, it's these kind of things. And, and, you know, we see her very tough with, you know, dealing with enemies. I mean, you know, she has that famous line, I don't like bullies. She's she's quite tough with antagonists on other ships, but the actual kind of physical hand-to-hand combat kind of side of it, I think it's quite nice just to, just to show that that is part of you know she's had that training just as they all have that's kind of part of her repertoire she can she can do that uh, as well as the rest of the kind of aspects of being a captain it's it's interesting because i think we we may have talked about this during the shakespeare episode or one of them in that picard and janeway share similar dna as captains and it's you you see at the end of macrocosm actually where janeway's you know got some nice light jazz on in a ready room and she's doing like a still life painting or whatever it is her painting is terrible. It is. <laughs> painting looks like it's done by a six-year-old. <laughs> it's really bad. I know she's not meant to be like she's a scientist. She's not meant to be a great artist. But I think they really, they really let the side down with that one because uh, it, it's kind of embarrassing. You know, maybe Kate Mulgrew did it herself. I don't know. Or they, they like they had this this problem where they were promised a really good painting and it didn't show up, and they were like, right, what can we get fast? Go and find yeah, something. Yeah. And there was like a. a, a kids like party next door or whatever and they were get that get that picture now that, that's um, what it looks like to me yeah <laughs> could be. i mean i don't think you know i can't imagine her taking that painting with her to her you know interview with leonardo da vinci <laughs> to be his uh, his apprentice or whatever and that he'd be particularly impressed by that to be look honest. what i drew leo uh yeah no Catherine. <laughs> see you later uh it, they they have you see the the similarity because that's exactly the kind of thing that picard would do it might not be painting but it might be you know reading a book or playing his flute or whatever or doing something cultural you know and you would see that either at the start of an episode um you know like we talked about fistful of datas a few weeks ago about how he spent the the entire teaser of that is him trying to play his flute and he keeps getting disturbed and things like that so you have this this common shared dna of two captains who are very tough in their own way like you said they're, they're tough with antagonists and other ships they're very well respected picard grows into this more than janeway is like a mother hen pretty much from the beginning but picard grows into that sort of fatherly figure of the ship throughout the show you know as he gets softer essentially with with his crew and he gets to like his crew more but they both share that same idea of being quite state states man slash womanly kind of captains whereas cisco was you know much more of a you know frontier sort of commander you know he was much more of a he, he could be a diplomat but he was a man of action and he was quite a you know and then of course the religious side he got caught up in all that so there was an element of like you know fanaticism with cisco so he was, he was a different animal and kirk as we say you know he's a He's a cowboy, you know, up in space. So they're very different kinds of characters. And Archer is, he's not a cultural man as as such, but he's also not quite as quick to temper as Cisco. So there's, but Picard and Janeway are quite similar in their own way. So that's why it is interesting to do this with them and why the writers chose to actually use Starship Mine and Macrocosm as a way of getting these characters into a situation where they have to be the man of action. They have to be the woman of action, which is against type of who they are and, and isn't, always the way they would you know react to a situation and in both situations they're off the ship and they're confronted with 
you know, they, they, they reluctantly have to step into those shoes, really, don't they? You know, with Picard, it's that he's he's trying to get away from that god awful reception. <laughs> he ends up back on the <laughs> yeah. ship to get his saddle, and then he realizes that you know these terrorists are trying to take over the ship. And for Janeway, it's the fact that she gets back to the ship and all hell's broken loose, and the crew are all gone and whatever, and she has to solve the problem. But in both situations, they are, I suppose, the reluctant action hero in a way aren't they yes yes i suppose that's true i mean, I mean in the same way as you know with the diehard story you, you know it, it's kind of i mean the guy john mcclain he's a, he's a policeman obviously he's a cop but he's not there in a professional capacity he's gone to you know try and have this sort of awkward uh, arrangement with his his kind of separated wife and and sort that out he goes to her again slightly unbearably uh, awful party and then gets you know finds himself kind of stuck in this scenario so yeah it's absolutely it's it's not like a, a mission that they've volunteered for it's it's not like picard in chain of command doing his commando training and going in undercover and that's kind of that's the intention you know he yeah like you say he he thought he was going to get a few hours uh you know riding on this planet and and just a bit of time you know kind of r and r time to himself but i mean it's interesting when you say you know that these these two characters it's quite against type i mean we talked a little bit about kate mulgrew not being that wild about it patrick stewart was delighted i mean patrick stewart famously had had this slightly awkward lunch with gene roddenberry i think during the second season of next gen um and then wrote this very long letter afterwards uh, he made a joke about it he basically said you know sorry this letter's so long that's what you get if you give an actor a day off um and he wrote this letter basically <laughs> listing everything that he was unhappy about about the character of Picard and this was it came to be known as the sex and shooting letter uh, because basically he said I'll, I'll read you a bit of it he says um, Picard is leader negotiator peacemaker ombudsman he thinks he talks he assesses he bluffs for all of which qualities I love him as I am the one who has sold again and again that this captain is a diplomat an ambassador but essentially in each of these stories he's a reactor hardly ever what I think we used to call in days long gone a protagonist from the actor's viewpoint the challenges of a narrow spectrum and the stimulation moderate um and and he get, then goes through all these different things that he'd like to see for picard so he'd like to have a bit more romance he'd like to have more idiosyncrasies um so for example the fencing the horse riding the, the kind of hobbies but basically sort of round out the character a little bit more and the other thing that he'd like crucially is more action and you, you know he sort of says obviously i understand they're not going to put the captain in danger the whole time but at the same time surely we can get picard doing a bit more physical stuff than he is at the moment and he you know he says um he says basically no offense to all my american colleagues but i'm, I'm sure i'm capable of doing as many stunts as they are and you, you know i'm kind of physically fit and and basically don't don't just i think there's sort of subtext don't just think of me as this kind of wise old man who who never really does any does any action and in fact i think in in this episode he did do a lot of his own stunts and he, he you know he was he was quite into that and he loved it there's a there's a, a quote i saw with him he said uh, i enjoyed the episode enormously it was wonderful to be out of uniform for an entire episode and to be on the ship without any of the other boring crew members <laughs> obviously that's a joke but i mean <laughs> yeah but there is probably a kind of kernel of truth in it of that kind of feeling of like you know right now i get to be the hero i get to do the kind of you know the action stuff i get to be uh what, what we see later in movie picard you know first the picard of first contact it's kind of definitely harks back to that idea um of th this man who's who seems quite different to the the captain that we kind of see week in and week out well i was going to say that, that that that's absolutely true this this does seem like the audition essentially for movie picard you know in that when they were right ronald d moore and brandon braga were writing first contact you, I, I would bet you bottom dollar they went back to starship mine and went would well, you know what patrick can do this stuff and he can do it actually quite convincingly and quite well so let's, you know, let's get him back in that vest top, you know, let's get him climbing ropes and let's get him shooting guns and all these kind of things, which is, you know, in first contact, it, it works, you know, it, it actually really works well. He works as an action man. And then, you know, to some extent they do, they do similar in insurrection with, you know, with less, you know, and then with Nemesis, it's, it's a bit more back to the old Picard in many respects, but... It is though it, it is an example of what they could push him to do, and it's interesting that when you talk about the the Roddenberry conversation, that how when Roddenberry stepped away after the end of the second series more, and Michael Pillar came in and started running things, they did start giving Picard a little bit more of that stuff. Obviously, you had you know the best of both worlds, which obviously you know puts him in this really perilous situation. There's episodes like Captain's Holiday where he gets romance with Vash. And, all, and so they, they do start doing a little bit more stuff with Picard, I think, that and that, that makes him either more of an action man, makes him more of an emotional man going into the third and fourth series and beyond. And I think that's, yeah, maybe if, maybe if uh, 
Pillar hadn't come along, it might have been a bit of a different story, really, for Picard. Although, interestingly, although Patrick Stewart liked Starship Mine, uh, and Ronald Moore, I think, who did a, a script rewrite on it, liked Starship Mine, Michael Pillar hated it. Michael Pillar said he, he thought it was too violent, he didn't really think it was Star Trek. You know, he, he said basically he thought it was a well, you know, well put together, well directed, well acted piece of television, but it really wasn't what he thought they were meant to be doing you know he, he wasn't perhaps as, as strict as gene roddenberry about what is and isn't star trek and what people wouldn't wouldn't do and you know how next gen was going to be totally different from the original series but at the same time he did have this kind of feeling of you know kind of what the the tone of the show was and what was kind of acceptable and and he obviously felt that that Starship Mine was was pushing a bit too much in a certain direction, pushing it too much towards Die Hard, uh, and not enough Star Trek. Could it be though that you know we got to remember this is this is the sixth season, this is like ninety two, ninety three, something like that, at a point where you know action movies in Hollywood over the last like you know ten years or so, five or ten years, have really started to you know come into their own, and the nineties especially was was if not more than the eight, more so than the eighties, the 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 decade of action blockbusters. You know you had Die Hard in eighty eight. You had the sequel in uh, 91, and I think Morgan Gendel, who wrote the first draft of uh, Starship Mine, did pitch it originally as as Die Hard on the Enterprise, and then you had you know Die Hard with a Vengeance coming soon after that. And he, he might deny the, the specific Die Hard connection subsequently, but apparently originally that was the pitch. So, you know, it was very much a conscious decision to make something in the mould of a genre that was appealing, you know, that was appealing to younger viewers, that was appealing to people who maybe were watching Star Trek and thinking, well, you know what, okay, I like it, but is it exciting enough? You know, there is, is there enough going on? Is, is, there, is there enough peril? You know, and it is, it is something that you could question the next generation, especially for, and, and, and funnily enough, Voyager as well, in that, you know, you, you can't level the same things at Deep Space Nine and Enterprise, because certainly Enterprise from the end of the second season onwards, they didn't have a problem with that. You know, there was a lot of action, there was a lot of suspense, a lot of things like that. Whereas the next generation Voyager, by their very nature of construction, were more along the Star Trek axis of shows dealing with specific, you know, moral themes, conditions, things like that. So maybe it was, a, certainly for Starship Mine, at that point in time, a conscious decision to tap into the kind of zeitgeist of the kind of action movies that people were going to see at the movies and actually wanting to bring a little that bit of that into Star Trek. You know, and maybe... Maybe it was a bit of a sign of the change of the times, you know, because there's been a big debate over the last 20, sort of, 20 years or so as to what Star Trek exactly is and where it's going. And obviously now we've got the Abrams films, which a lot of people are suggesting are not Star Trek. So it is interesting how Pillar didn't like it. Maybe he felt this way, that they shouldn't be tapping that well. Yeah. The funny thing is, I sort of feel like the Abrams films aren't Star Trek, I have to say. As, certainly, you know, the first two, any of the ones that he directed. And it is to do with that kind of action, sort of spectacular thing. But I don't know whether for me also there's an element... I mean, one of the things that kind of struck me going back and watching some of these films, you know, watching the Alien films, watching... Actually, watching Die, Die Hard, I'd never seen. So um, that was that was quite an experience. Watching yeah, wow. Did you like but, it? But I loved it. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Um, it was darker than I was expecting I think I and that's kind of interesting about some of those films is that they're I think the action movie genre has changed a lot so like a modern action movie is quite different to those those kind of earlier action movies they they're simultaneously grittier and funnier I think I mean Die Hard is a very you know there's a lot of humor very funny movie quite silly in some ways I mean it has a sort of quirky sense of humor that I don't think you'd get so much in in kind of action movies now but there's also a kind of gritty nasty you know the the blood and so on it, it is tougher to watch than you might expect from a kind of you know a, a sort of entertaining romp so i do feel that like that genre has has changed in a way and and maybe part of it is that the abrams films are more like you know a modern how a modern action movie might be very slick very fast paced very there is humour. It's it's not that they're that they're kind of serious, but there's a kind of an intensity that that almost doesn't let up in some way. And I don't know. Maybe it's just an age thing. I mean, maybe it's you know. I I remember the first the first time I felt this with a film was a long time ago. I was only a teenager at the time. I went to see the first Tomb Raider film, and there were some scenes in that that I just felt were edited too fast for me to really appreciate what was going on. And I think part of the problem for a lot of people with like modern action films is is the editing more than anything it's the kind of hyper frenetic editing that um it's very different from something like die hard or you know terminator 2 i watched again this week because um i think the presentation of um 
Janeway in uh, in Macrocosm, although largely the, the sort of obvious reference point is is Ellen Ripley. I think Sarah Connor in Terminator Two is another one of those very strong, yeah. physically strong. You know, she's got the muscles, she's got the military training, she's got the kind of you, you know she she she's basically in the gap between those two films. She's she sort of turned herself into a Terminator herself. She's she's gone to you know she's picked up all these military skills and so on. Apparently, Linda Hamilton spent weeks training with this Israeli army woman who was you know teaching her all this kind of military techniques and spending hours in the gym every day and so on you, you you know complete transformation from the character of sarah connor in in the original terminator film but but you know again even in in terminator 2 it, it's a it's a very different beast from a kind of modern action spectacular and i don't know watching these old films are like to, to me they have so much more charm and they're, they're so much more appealing and i don't know whether that's just because they you know there's a nostalgic element they kind of connect to my childhood you know i saw all these films as a kid although as I say, I love Die Hard and I didn't see that as a kid, but I suppose I saw films kind of like that. I, I, it was a callback to something that I, a genre that I understood that I just don't think maybe exists in the same way anymore. In some ways, I think the closest thing we've got is, is the superhero movies that have that kind of wacky, slightly wacky, slightly quirky kind of action comedy you know, mood that was was very prevalent in the 80s. I mean, I feel like if you were writing a film in the 80s, it had to have humour in it. It had to kind of zing along somehow um you know the, the the scripts were good um in a way that i think a lot of you know later action films the, the script sort of feels like the last thing that anyone is you know is remotely bothered about if you think about transformers or, or something like that it's all about the spectacle it's all about the visuals it's all about the special effects and it's a different it's just a different phenomenon well i think if you want a good example of how the action movie genre has changed and i think you're right you only have to really look at the Die Hard franchise. Really, I mean, if if you if you take the first Die Hard, which, as you say, is quite witty, it's it's actually surprising. I wouldn't say slow, but it's surprisingly takes a long time to actually get to the point where you get John McClane without his, his shoes on in that vest, you know, tearing around Nakatomi Plaza. There's quite a lot of build up. There is quite a lot of drama, and it's it's surprising when you go back and watch it actually. Whereas by the time you get to a good day to Die Hard, which is the fifth film. It is just a comic book level of ridiculousness in which he's jumping off, you know, exploding Harrier jets and, you know, it's it, it's it's lunacy. And while I've got a bit of a soft spot for that film, even though it's universally hated by everybody else, Die Hard 4 and Die Hard 5 especially are considered the, the you know, these writ large examples of, of action franchises that have just completely jumped the shark. Whereas the first three films, I mean, Die Hard with a Vengeance is... And I don't know if I've ever said this on any podcast before, but it is my favourite film. I, I, it's not the best film ever made, but it is actually my favourite film. But it is the nostalgia, as you, as you said before. That film I watched when I was 13, I picked it up from a video store and I fell in love with it. And I know that film, I know all the dialogue, I've watched it ridiculous amount of times. It is my most cherished movie. But it does come down to that nostalgia. But if, if you track that, there is that level of change. There is that level of, I suppose, dumbing down is one one way to call it. Also, that level of yeah, I think intensity is a good word as well. You know that that relentlessness about it. But it's like it becomes more relentless and less intense. I mean, some you, you know because suspense gets lost in that, and kind of you know the slow build up is important if you want to build suspense. I mean, Alien, the same thing. You, you know, Ridley Scott apparently famously said the first half of Alien, nothing really happens. It's just people sort of mooching around. You, you know, and it's true. There's like there's a huge amount of build up for suspense for, and only really like the bit that you think of as that film is probably like the last twenty minutes is you know Ripley on her own, which is the kind of iconic thing that we're talking about in Macrocosm. The you know that happens right at the end and actually even aliens which is a massive you know action spectacular there's quite a lot of build-up in that film there's quite a lot of kind of you you know kind of getting to meet the people and working out where they're where they're going and so on but i think it's true there's definitely you know there was a shift over that period of time when you were talking about the diehard films i was thinking about you know say the james bond films towards the end of pierce brosnan's run you know getting increasingly kind of ridiculous increasingly kind of you know over the top kind of the opposite of what i was saying about taking things you know not taking it seriously at all but but in a way that is almost kind of it's frustrating to watch because you feel it's it's it slightly insults the intelligence of the audience and the intelligence of anyone involved in it because it's because it's just all about the spectacle. It's all about the kind of the the glitz and the kind of um, the, the the shiny, exciting things that are being thrown at it. And it's not about the story. It's not about the character. It's not about the kind of you know the the, the kind of heart of what those 
films could be. Um, and obviously, in that instance, they then kind of tried to go back and sort of reset things a bit with Casino Royale and, and do something that was it was quite retro, you know, going back right to the beginning um, and, and trying to find a different kind of genre almost for, you know, for what for what those James Bond action films are. It is about tone. It is about, you know, the way you pitch things. And I think if, in going going back to Starship Mine, I think it does quite well, actually, managing to have that level of build-up, even though you've only got like 40, 42 minutes or whatever it is. You know, it, it, it allows a little bit of time, maybe it's 10 minutes or whatever, to get to the point where Picard is desperately trying to get out of that party with that really tedious commander. So you've got him, you've got the comedy element, you've got the wit and the comedy element of him doing whatever he can to escape while everyone else, all of his crew know, we know what you're doing, Jean-Luc. You know, there's a few little moments where they're like, yeah, we know we know what you're up to. But then, And then the, the, the side comedy of Data trying to do small talk, which is some lovely little, mm. you know, Brent Spiner work. Really it's good. really yeah. good, yeah. And he, and he starts to yeah. absorb the, the persona of Commander Hutchinson, Hutchinson, I think that is, or whatever. Call me Hutch, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hutch, yeah. That's it, yeah. Call me Hutch. And and he, it, that's that really good. So when you go back to the, the hostage situation, essentially, which doesn't really ever particularly go anywhere, you know, really, it's, it's worth it for the data stuff. So you have enough of that build-up and that slight escalation that the point when Picard is back on the Enterprise and he realizes something is up, then you're invested in the story and it actually just sweeps you along then and you enjoy Picard turning the tables on these, you know, these terrorists who think they've got it all sussed, they think they're gonna get the um what is it they're after again? Is it it's the um Trilithium. The Trilithium, that's it. Yeah, the Trilithium that's from the, the MacGuffin, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it builds like lovely in a really nice way to the point where, you know, the the woman who's leading them is quite a bitch, <laughs> to be fair. She's yeah. she's not she's not pleasant at all and she's just consistently yeah. unpleasant. She kills one of her own sort of hench people, doesn't she? I mean she's yeah, she's a nasty piece of work, definitely. She really is, yeah. She's uh and good that they that they made that a female character, I suppose. In a, I mean, it, you know, you know, it would have been more. I mean, that must have been a decision at some point to say we're going to make the leader of this group a woman rather than a man, which is kind of what you would probably assume and expect, and particularly in that kind of action movie genre, you would you would expect. Yeah, normally, you know, if you've got a bad girl woman in those genres, they are the femme fatale or they're the, you know the 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 bad guy's you know evil henchwoman or whatever. Yeah, it's not it's unusual that that the woman is leading the pack, so it was a good decision. She plays it well. She's very much, interestingly, I mean, she's a, a female character who's, you, you know, she's not playing the vamp, she's not playing the femme fatale, she's, she's not playing into any female stereotype, really. Uh, she could have been written as a male character, and famously, of course, Ellen Ripley was written as a male character, and it was only, you know, it was Ridley Scott who basically had this brainwave of saying, well, why don't we make this character a woman? And in doing so, sort of inadvertently created this real kind of feminist icon, because Ripley, you know, the way that she's written, um, particularly in, in the first film, it, it's not all about her being a woman you know she's about her being a competent officer it's about her being you know making sensible decisions it's about her kind of bravery it's about all these sort of things and as much as as we go forward in the films that, that there's a storyline that develops around kind of Ripley's maternal instincts and Ripley's you know and, and sort of things that that connect to her I suppose biologically as being a woman and, and to do with with those kind of cultural ideas about being a woman but at the same time she's not aside from the unfortunate scenes in pretty much all the alien films where she gets down in her knickers for you know two minutes towards the end other than that she's basically you know she's treated very much as a competent human being there's not she's not treated as a woman in the film and i suppose you know you see the same thing with um you know with sarah connor to some extent she's not the, the kind of her her being a woman doesn't really play into it very much it's it's much more about the character what she's experienced what she's gone through the the the, the kind of storyline you, you know it, it, these are quite groundbreaking female characters i think for a genre that could be very sexist and could really kind of pigeonhole women into quite weak you know the damsel in distress role or like you say the you know the the femme fatale role um that these kind of action movie women are you know a really uh strong way of, of kind of getting away from that and kind of giving these great roles to women i mean you know we've had recently um there was a meme going around the internet with people saying oh you know this uh, wonder woman film and how wonderful to have this strong uh female character and then this meme was going around with pictures of you know ripley and sarah connor and people like that sort of saying well you know it has been done before actually it's not you know this isn't it is it is sadly unusual but it's not a uh, brand new thing you know there have been these iconic figures 
before that have kind of trod that ground before them. And I suppose it makes sense since Janeway as well was a kind of a key moment in a sense for Star Trek and for TV, putting a woman at the head of a science fiction franchise like that. You know, it, it, it kind of makes sense to, to tie into that somewhere. Yeah, it, it does really. And I think, you know, I think I enjoyed Starship Mine more than I did Macrocosm as an episode. I think it's, I think it's just a little bit better written. I think that I think it's a little bit more of an interesting story. But I, but because Mac, Macrocosm is different, Macrocosm doesn't pitch, you know, terrorists trying to take over Voyager or anything like that. It pitches an alien, essentially a vi- you know a virus that you know a, a macro virus that then becomes an, a microorganism which then starts to grow as it you know develops um, based on a, an interaction with an alien species, and then it becomes you know, the the alien menace, but not played in the same way as um, alien or aliens necessarily. You know, it is it, it is a little bit more of a uh, a traditional sort of run and shoot kind of kind of story. And there's this big chunk in the middle where it sort of flashes back to tell the backstory of it, which I'll be honest, I understand the need to sort of tell that, but it felt like a whole big section where you stop, you stop the story in what, you know, completely and then tell the backstory when I think that could have been done in a more interesting way that keeps the focus on Janeway and, you know, Janeway having to basically save the ship. It feels like one of those kind of contractual obligations to, you know, make sure that every character gets a line of dialogue because obviously in the time frame of the actual story, they're all unconscious in the mess hall. So it's kind of like, you know, suddenly we've got, we've got to see them all going through all this before and it kind of, it completely, it, I mean, we're talking about this suspense, it completely kills the suspense, uh, really, of the episode because it's like, you know, this life or death situation and she's suddenly got time to sit there and, and listen to the doctor rabbit on for 20 minutes about how it all came to happen you know yeah she'll go oh um tell me doctor what happened when you and balana started talking <laughs> it's like oh come on Catherine, you've got an entire ship full of you know yeah. alien viruses that you need to destroy have you really got time for a chinwag yeah it, it's it's convenient and contrived but it is ultimately putting janeway in that position where she has to become the, the woman of action she has to just solve the problem like like picard had to solve the problem they don't have a choice they've got to sort this out quickly efficiently and janeway is a good character to, to do that as as ripley was in those you know in those films you know she was put in those situations where she had to get involved and quite often she was the one turning around and going well don't go over there because you you're going to uncover something terrible don't do that you foolish men because you're going to uncover something terrible yeah and it, and it yeah, is yeah. It, again it's that whole thing that you know would the same situation that happened on Voyager had ha- have happened if Janeway wasn't off getting involved with the um, those ridiculous aliens that she meets. Tack, tack. yeah. <laughs> Which Tic Tac alien? Oh my god! There was the sequence at the end where she's <laughs> their weird they, dance kind. Oh, of... what was that about? Where he's <laughs> doing that little dance? Thing. I was, I, was cr- yeah, I that shouldn't was have been laughing at that, that point, but I was one. crying with laughter. Uh, <laughs> threatening to blow up her ship but <laughs> through the medium of interpretive dance basically <laughs> yeah it really was i think funnily enough i mean i mean i i agree with you i think that section in the middle where the, the doctor kind of gives the backstory is is a flaw in that episode and, and brandon braga who wrote it felt the same way he said basically his idea was he really wanted to he, he said initially he wanted to do an episode with no dialogue whatsoever basically uh, like a proper kind of action movie that, that would just have Janeway on her own and and you know really not much else but he was obviously kind of persuaded to to stick those that kind of act in the middle kind of explaining what happened and and he wasn't very happy with it either i mean i I think generally i I think starship mine is a much better episode than macrocosm uh to be honest i think part of that though is that for next gen it's quite a dark quite an unusual episode i mean it is quite gritty there is a kind of nastiness to it i mean there's you know picard in in uh starship mine has something of the kind of james bond about him there's a, a point where he tricks one of the one of the guys into being sort of vaporized by the baryon sweep and then he he, uh, he that seems quite cool that, that that kind of cool calculating side of james bond he even has one of those kind of flippant lines with the villain where where um she says oh there's only you know, room on my shuttle for for one person, and he he says something like, "Oh, all right, I'll send your regrets then." I mean, it's a real that's a proper sort of you know that kind of cold James Bond kind of wit, which we really don't you know typically associate with Picard. And I think that episode it it pushes it slightly out of the kind of next gen safe territory. This is why Michael Pillar wasn't happy with it. And towards that kind of slightly nastier, it's a slightly edgier side that you get in a film like Die Hard, which although it's a romp and although it's quite fun, does have, you know, some kind of gritty, nasty elements in it. I think with the Voyager episode with Macrocosm, it still feels very much like a Voyager episode. And actually I was quite struck watching it 
you know, having having watched the Alien films this week and then going and watching it, it's it doesn't have that kind of tension. It doesn't have that. Um, it's a very tame, bland version of that kind of story. The lighting is 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 too bright. It's not you know, it's it's not kind of it's not scary frankly and you know it, it borrows a lot of the kind of ideas from alien not just the ripley character but you know the kind of goo everywhere and the kind of body horror with these wounds with flies coming out of them and and literally the fact that it, it's based on a virus that infects someone takes their dna and then comes out in a large physical monstrous form which is precisely well not precisely but, but broadly speaking is is the story of alien as well it's, it's a xenomorph i mean the macrovirus is effectively a xenomorph in the same way so it's borrowing a lot from those films actually whatever Brandon Braga you, you know claimed that that wasn't the intention it is clearly heavily influenced by them but it doesn't capture the tense suspense the kind of I mean those films are scary you know when I was a kid I mean I remember they 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 used to have a I don't know if they still do it one of those things where you could go along in the it was like a sort of walkthrough experience and the aliens would come running at you. I would never have dreamed of going to that. I thought that was absolutely terrifying, the idea <laughs> of going there, even if you know it's a man in a suit. You know, and, and those films, they, they are, they're really, you know, they're well put together to build a suspense and together. And, and the Voyager episode, it just doesn't, it, it, it can't really manage that. And I suppose part of it is that I mean, I was struck thinking about these films and the fact that, you know, I watched them as kids and I don't know, they, they probably weren't really meant to be watched as kids, but I suppose people of our generation, the kind of VHS generation, there, there was a lot of that, you, you know, kids watching films they probably shouldn't be watching. But there were, you know, all these films, they've got a lot of um, swearing in them, for example. That was the one thing that struck me. So Terminator 2, you know, John Connor is this kind of teenage kid. He's a kind of, I mean, you know, um, my girlfriend watched that one with me she was she was oh he was such a heartthrob I remember you know I remember everyone had posters of him on the wall you know like girls basically teenage girls thought the the teenage boy in that was a kind of you, you know heartthrob character in that kind of you know like sort of young Leonardo DiCaprio that kind of role but um you know he's so he's kind of a kid he's quite he's quite sweet and innocent but he swears the whole time you know he's swearing his mouth off the whole time um and you, you know famously uh you, you know die hard uh there's quite a lot of swearing in that to the extent that they have this you know i'm sure you've heard about this this line about the you know the tv edit of of die hard has the line yippee kaye melon farmers <laughs> because that was the kind of they had to dub something over the top of that word and that was the uh, you know that was the closest uh, acceptable phrase that they could have i find it strange going back there's this weird thing with those films that they feel like they're perfect for kids and I think of them as kind of as almost as kids' films because I, I watched them as a kid. But at the same time, they have these kind of edgy sides that maybe aren't quite so appropriate because they have a lot of profanity. They have a lot of things that, you know, you certainly wouldn't get away with uh, in a kids' film and that you wouldn't get away with in Star Trek. I mean, we get almost no Star Trek. We get almost no swearing in Star Trek. We get, um, I mean, Data saying shit in Generations, which is a big, you know, was a big deal at the time. And then, and then weirdly, we get O'Brien saying bollocks in Deep Space Nine, which, I, which that, that shocked me more. I don't think but, they realise, do they? I, that they how much of a swear word that is? Meant. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, oh, that's, that's some, you know, yeah, some European, some sort of English, English, Irish word. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Either that or he improvised it. But I, I just, I, it, yeah. it was hard to imagine that someone even wrote that in the script. But anyway, but it went, yeah. you know, it went through. It wasn't censored or anything. Oh, on a, on a side note, can I just point out, are you familiar with the, um, the wonderful Facebook Twitter account, Roddy Doyle's Does Star Trek? I am. I am, yeah. <laughs> if, 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 guys, if you haven't seen this, Google it, right? Roddy Doyle's Star Trek. It's basically stills of O'Brien and his inner monologue done in the style of Roddy Doyle. And it is wonderful. It's just it's just O'Brien getting drunk, being really sexist, really racist. And although <laughs> it doesn't sound hor- it sounds horrible. It, it, honestly, it's gold. It's pure gold. So go and look that up. It's because I suppose it does make sense that O'Brien's the one swearing because O'Brien is like the 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 the, the least kind of evolved uh, futuristic character, isn't he? he? He is the one who gets really fed up the whole time and he, who kind of hates his job half the time. And is, you, you know, there's the other that comic strip O'Brien at work where he's just he's you know being in the transporter room. It's like the most boring job in the world. He's kind of you, you know he um he he has that side to he's quite relatable in a sense um, compared to you know, a lot, a lot of the other characters. I mean, it's interesting, just just talking about swearing, that kind of thing. I don't know whether, say with Discovery, because we know that it's going to be on the streaming service, it's not constrained by the kind of typical, uh, I mean, I don't, you, you know, in, in England we have a watershed. I don't know what the, the equivalent is in America, but I know they have rules about swearing and, you know, uh, sex and violence and all these kinds of things. And obviously one of the things that 
people were sort of saying early on was, well, if it's on this, um, you, you know, streaming services, is it going to be Game of Thrones? Is there going to be kind of nudity and violence and all this kind of thing? And, and if so, that's going to be very different because, you, you know, Star Trek is a kind of family friendly show and I think it always has been and, and there have been moments that have been a bit gory or a bit you know nasty or whatever and obviously with Enterprise they you know sort of went as far as they felt they could get away with with kind of saucy uh, you know sort of borderline soft porn whenever they could kind of you know push that in there but at the same time there, there were very clear limitations on, on what they could and couldn't show and, and you know keeping it within the the scope of that kind of family friendly environment i don't know whether having you, you know being freed up like that with discovery whether that's something that they'll take advantage of whether we are going to see i mean you know something that's a lot a lot bloodier a lot a lot more you know kind of gritty in those ways or or whether that's kind of a, a rule in the sense that michael Puller was saying look this isn't star trek whether that's something that they'll respect and that they'll kind of they'll say well yes we you know we do have more freedom but at the same time these are the ground rules and we're you know we're kind of basically going to stick to them my instinct is that they will stick to them i think i think the people involved you know brian fuller was the one who was the first person to you know get this rolling before he, he moved on to do american gods you know alex kurtzman is heavily involved these guys they do know their trek for better or worse you know and, and i suspect that they won't push it too far i think you might get a little bit more uh, you know profanity or a little bit more you know, raciness and, and violence than you would do. You would have done in the 90s, certainly, or even, you know, even with Enterprise, even 10, 15 years ago. I, th I think that the way that television exists now is that that's how it works. You know, unless you are on a very specific, you know, network channel where it is still very safe, the majority of the best television and the majority of television now is moving much towards streaming. It's moving towards cable. You know, it's moving more towards presenting these universes in, in a darker more adult context but, but i don't necessarily think they will go for the full hog with discovery because star trek ultimately you know has a certain a certain tone a certain feel although you know the irony is when you were talking about you know the sex element if you think about it i mean three of, of the five star trek series had very sort of intentionally buxom alluring women you had you know you had counselor troy who basically wore a, a, a you know a jumpsuit which had most of her boobs out you had Seven of Nine, who wore the most skin-tight catsuit ever, right, to show off her figure. And then you had Topol, who, you know, they, they did what they could to get her in a shower with Trip. <laughs> you know, do you know what I mean? So they, even though it was in that very safe network sort of terms, in a lot of these episodes, they did sort of have this underlying, you know, sexual element to them with these, these specifically sort of beautiful, quite, you know, curvy books and women who could maybe appeal to the to the kind of male audience funnily enough that would go and watch most of these action movies and and because you know they they were these these films were geared towards teenage boys or you know or young young men that that is pretty much the demographic not completely that's not me being you know enormously stereotypical but on the whole and you know with aliens i think that would appeal to a big feminine audience in many respects because it has a very feminine element with Ripley and with Newton with the, the whole idea of motherhood but ultimately they are generally made for for young men so it is it is interesting that Star Trek has always sort of played a little bit with these ideas but done it a little bit more safe Discovery I think will sort of be a balance of the two I suspect I think we will get a lot more action definitely hopefully I mean we've not seen you know it's, it's in terms of like representation of female characters in Discovery certainly from everything we've seen so far they seem to have moved away from that I mean there isn't a sort of obvious you know what I mean you you can read these cringy uh, interviews with uh, Rick Berman and Brandon Braga about their casting process you know Berman talks a lot about casting the babe how it's how difficult it is casting the babe because you've got to get the you know the the young woman who looks great in the skin tight outfit but also ideally can act um and, and you know that that he sort of always saw that as a real challenge i mean and i think those characters you know were understandably very divisive i mean kate mulgrew was furious about jerry ryan joining voyager and you know as a result i think that there they had a very bad working relationship because of that not that it was really jerry ryan's fault that she was there but you know i think kate mulgrew saw that as a real sort of anti-feminist gesture basically saying look this show's not doing well enough we need to bring in the the, the buxom female character and to poll similarly i think jolene blaylock had a you know clearly didn't have the best time working on enterprise um you know compared to some of the other cast i think she had a lot of issues with the way that her character was kind of portrayed with some of the decisions that were made and i think a lot of that was like you say about you know looking for any chance to get her in the shower or whatever and 
you, you know, which presumably was quite uncomfortable for her as an actress uh, to be, you know, to know that you're in that role and that that's kind of what you're being used for in a sense, and that you're, you're, you're being used to sell the show in this kind of slightly demeaning way almost. And I think, you know, I mean, obviously, these kind of female characters like, like Ripley or like Sarah Connor, they're very much avoiding that. They're very much not going down that, that direction because they're not, you know, as I say, aside from these brief scenes of um, Sigourney Weaver in, an under, in her underwear, they're not, they're not being sexualised particularly in those films. They're, they're, they're being treated, taken seriously and, and treated seriously as, those, as characters. And Ripley, you, you know, actually watching like the first three Alien films back to back, has an amazingly strong character arc. And I mean, you were talking a bit about the kind of, um, the, the, the toughness of these women. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about her is she gets tougher and tougher with each film. The more stuff she has to put up with, the more she goes through, the more steely, the more determined, the stronger she becomes. And, and you see the same thing with Sarah Connor. There's this element, you know, both those characters suffer from PTSD in effect of, uh, in their second films. They're both having nightmares. They're dealing with these kind of demons from what they've been through. And in, in Ripley's case, it, well, in both their cases, actually, there's an element, there's a sort of hint of sexual violence. There's an, they're being kind of stalked by this very male monster. They've kind of escaped from it. And yet, you know, it's still out there in some form or it's going to come back. And, and they kind of arm themselves to go back and, and fight it. And in Aliens, it's it's very much, you know, she, she makes the decision. She has to go and face her demons. She has to, you know, gear up with the guns and everything and go and blast the hell out of it. But it's that kind of process of, of going through the trauma, of going through these awful experiences that makes them tougher and that makes them kind of steelier. And you see that in some ways, I think, with Janeway as well in um, Year of Hell. I mean, we were talking about how, you know, the Picard in Starship Mine is a sort of audition for movie Picard. I think the Janeway we see in macrocosm has sort of something in common with the Janeway we see in um, in Year of Hell, you know, who the more kind of brutalised she and her ship are by everything that happens in that episode, the more, you know, she's scarred, she's she's lost people, she's her whole world is falling apart around her. She doesn't crack up. She gets tougher and tougher and tougher and tougher. And that's what you see with Janeway is, is the more difficult the situation becomes, the more kind of steely she becomes. And, and you know, one of the reasons people love that episode is, is her performance is great. She, you know, her strength as a captain, her strength as a character comes through really strongly in that. The other thing that struck me is those are both the episodes where we see this kind of vest uh, it's kind of you think famously that those shots of, of Janeway in, in Year of Hell and you think of that kind of iconic picture of Janeway in Year of Hell she's she's not in her full uniform she's stripped down to that kind of grey vest and it's the same thing almost that she's she's wearing in macrocosm in macrocosm she's literally in the sleeveless vest in, in Year of Hell she's in the, the one above that or whatever but it's also you, you know it's what we see with, with movie Picard that, that's why we think of movie Picard as this kind of action hero is the end of First Contact he's, he, he's basically dressed as John McClane he's got the muscles he's got the vest he's kind of doing the real physical thing. Patrick Stewart's obviously kind of been to the gym. And one of the, the these sort of weird tropes in all these kind of action movies is, I think basically, unless you're James Bond, the way that you kind of show, show you know, demonstrate your chops as, a, as an action movie hero or heroine is you get very hot and sweaty. You strip off as many of your clothes as possible. I mean, John McClane doesn't even have shoes for, for the whole of Die Hard. <laughs> uh, and and you're, you're dripping with sweat and it's all very kind of, um, it's, it's a bit like a sort of overblown gym session almost. And, and, you know, and they have to come up with explanations for that. So, you know, so for example, in, in First Contact, the Borg have literally like turned the thermostat up and the enterprise is unbearably hot so everyone has to kind of strip down and, and get into this kind of action role uh, in macrocosm there, there's this problem with the the environmental controls are offline and therefore the plasma from the warp core or whatever is heating the ship up so again it's kind of unbearably hot and everyone's sweating and stripping down and i think that that obviously is is kind of part of the sort of iconography of those characters is this idea of this sort of sweaty tough I don't know, like this, this kind of kind of gym body version of these people who who normally are very kind of you know well presented and quite cool in their uniforms and and you know everything seems very kind of climate controlled and air conditioned and so on and 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 suddenly they're they're kind of pushed up against it and and this kind of physical transformation is sort of represented by that 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 weird shift in temperature somehow and the the way that they have to respond to that. It's definitely a big change up, and I think it, it, in both of these episodes that's what you ultimately get you get this this you know this difference this change up with these characters and uh you know and it, and it does create a different kind of episode in both instances that than than you would normally have got um in these in these series so it's 
it's it's it's interesting to look at them. It's interesting to look at them and examine them and think about you know their links to the uh, to the action movie genre. I have one final question before we wrap up, Duncan, to ask, which is going back to the bigger picture of action films. If you had to pick one, what would you say your favourite retro sort of old school action movie would be? I think it it probably. I mean, it kind of reconfirmed it for me. You know, rewatching it this week, but Terminator Two, I think, is the kind of is almost the sort of archetype of that that genre pushed to the maximum because I suppose because it combines so many different elements and it, and it's interesting I think James Cameron we we think of as this you know kind of amazing spectacular director but he's a great writer as well you know and the the script for that film I mean the 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 script for he actually wrote the script for Aliens before he was hired as the director of that film. Um, and they bought the script and it was only after they saw Terminator that they said, oh, we should get this guy to direct it as well. You know, he's, he's, he knows what he's doing. But I think, you know, that script, it combines great action, great comedy, which is something that we talked about a lot. A, a really strong emotional story, you, you know, strong character arcs for all the characters. You know, this kind of heartbreaking ending where the Terminator has to has to kill himself, basically, in order to protect the others amazing spectacular special effects i mean the special effects in that film are stunning even you know whatever it is 20 something odd years later uh you know i'm thinking about the, like the silver goo and everything they're better than the special effects in macrocosm that's for sure um <laughs> and true. you know obviously he had a huge budget and so on and and you know famously he's he, he seems to keep making like the most expensive film ever made but at the same time he knows what to do he, he isn't throwing the money away he's not making uh water world do you know what i mean he, he's, he's not wasting no. the money he's he kind of knows what to do with it and he does really show you something you haven't seen before so i suppose for me that's the film that kind of really captures that genre and, and really milks it for all that it's got. What about you? Well, I mean, the, the critic in me would probably have to say Die Hard, realistically, as the sort of apex of, of the action genre, because it just does everything right. It's a pretty perfect, you know, piece of, of cinema in that sense. But I think, and, and you know, I, I, I've, got, I've got to go back to Die Hard with a Vengeance, though, because I think from, from not just because of the nostalgia, but I do genuinely do think that that is a fantastic movie, as, as is probably what would be my other choice, which is The Rock which stars right. um, yeah, yeah. Sean Connery and uh, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> the, the, for my money, the only truly great Michael Bay film that ever uh, will ever exist, and because it, it, is, it is brilliant from start to finish. But Die with a Vengeance, I think, the reason I think that's a great action film and one of the defining action films is that, is that it kind of not, it's not just exciting, it's not just funny with the amazing banter between Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, but it has all the sort of action movie elements that make that genre of that specific time, 1995, so it's kind of at that just sort of, you know, central point really. It's got, it has got a lot of profanity, it has got a lot of blood and gore, it has got a lot of, you know, ridiculous over the top action, it has a really sort of, you know, like the first Die Hard, it has a hammy but theatrical and great villain in Jeremy Irons, like Alan Rickman was in the first Die Hard. You know, it's it, it just got so much charisma to it and so much fun and so much, you know, excitement that it's just, it, it that that's what I think great action films, you know, and Terminator 2 is exactly the same. You know, it does it, it has all of those elements. It's, it's, it's science fiction as well, that one. So it's slightly different in some respects. But it, it is it is the same stuff. A great action movie and a great template of that is something that brings all of those things together and just you know, just makes you have fun for two hours, but equally tells a good story and has, you know, a lot of wit and a lot of humour and a lot of charm. Something I think Starship Mine has and something to a degree and something <laughs> I don't think Macrocosm has. No. <laughs> I think maybe part um, of it is that is that I mean, you know, talking about the you know, we've been talking about, about the, the scripts for those those films and the, the ones that work and the ones that don't and the, maybe the extent to which these days, uh, you know, like if you think about a Michael Bay film today, they, they, they don't feel like the script is, is really uh, laboured over very much or, or is in any way a work of art. I suppose that's the thing. <laughs> no. I think, you know, the script for Die Hard is, you know, is great. It's, very, it's well constructed. There's a lot in there. The script for Terminator 2, like I say, I think is, it is a work of art. You know, I think it's a really uh, fantastic piece of, of work and brings a lot of things together. And I mean, maybe part of what doesn't work so much about macrocosm is, yes, it's kind of riffing on various aspects of the iconography of the alien films. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's doing something with the Janeway character, which I think is good. I think it's good that they did it. I mean, I think it, it adds something to Voyager, it adds something to her character. I think it's 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 
good that it's there, but I don't think as a story it's it feels a bit thin somehow. There's not much to it. Whereas Starship Mine, actually, one of the things that's nice about it is it's not. Yes, it is Captain Picard going in action mode, but it's not just Captain Picard gets a gun and goes around shooting people. It's it's quite clever. You you know he's quite ingenious. He's kind of he's using his brain. He's using kind of psychological manipulation. He's using other elements and. To an extent, John McClane does that. I mean, he kind of taunts them and, and, you know, there's this kind of relationship back and forth with the villains and so on. But they're kind of adding extra stuff to it. And also, I think, you know, you know, I mean, a great thing that Starship Mine adds to the kind of diehard story is this, the idea of the Baron Sweep. The, the Baron Sweep is a brilliant, you know, ticking clock, basically, to add on to that story that, you know, not only have these people taken over the ship and he's got to get the ship back, but there's this kind of constantly encroaching danger that's going to get, you know, nearer and nearer and nearer. And he's running out of space. He's running out of time. It's a great, you know, we talked about suspense and the fact that maybe in macrocosm they, they slightly fail to, to generate much of a sense of suspense. Starship Mine has suspense because of that, you know, brilliant kind of invention of, of the, the Baryon Sweep as a device for kind of um, keeping the tension up in a sense, right through to, you know, almost the final scene. I, I completely agree with that. And I think that's where the two scripts and stories differ. Um, one, one, you know, one working and one not quite working, but both, as you say, both being interesting experiments, both showing that Picard and Janeway in their own right can both be action heroes as well as the, you know, um, the learned, cultured statesman and woman commanders, you know, of, of these ships. So it's, it, it, it's fun to see them, you know, take a cue from those action science fiction genres and uh, and put them in a Trek context. So, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I'm going to go off and watch um, probably a lot of action films myself now because... Um, I'm going on shore leave, Duncan, aren't I, for a little bit of a while? That's right. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to be with you for about the next four episodes. Duncan is going to be uh, having some I'll be manning guests. the ship on my own. I've got <laughs> I've got a, a lineup of top secret guests. Yes, yeah, so you, you'll be uh, some some familiar voices. I think you'll find, but um, it, it should be fun. It should, it should be interesting. But uh, you know, we'll yeah. keep your seat warm for you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there were, there's going to be some interesting guests um, and some interesting topics still uh, while I'm away. So um, don't worry. I'll be back. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that had to be done, didn't it? That had to be done. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it had to. But it did. It did. But uh, apart from uh, Duncan and I talking about uh, diehard aliens, Star Trek and everything in between, um, that's not the only thing that's been going on this week on Trek FM. So um, let's have a little look at what else has been happening on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Saturday Morning Trek. This episode is the only Star Trek that they used to only watch with me. Like, they had no interest in Star Trek except for this episode. If I said Star Trek, they'd say, Tribbles, oh, let's watch that that Tribbles where they get real big and sits in Kirk's chair. They saw the live action one. They didn't, I mean, they kind of liked it, but they always went to the animated one. Standard Orbit. I was really hoping that Quinto would have a uh, tie-in to, you know, when the Hobbit trilogy came out, you know, a few years ago. I was like, oh, they might tie into that and... Quinto can have a remix of the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. They didn't, they didn't quite go there, did they? So no, they they did not. They did not. But you know, there are certain things that you can, I guess, mirror or remake. That is not something that should ever be remade. The Six O Two Club. As I mentioned previously, completely blind and not having known this history about him wanting to do a Tolkien-like. Uh, world, I didn't get that at all. I mean, that's just nope. And introducing The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. What have you done out there on the edge of Federation space? Welcome to The Edge, Trek FM's brand new podcast where we dive into the final frontier of the newest Star Trek series, Star Trek Discovery, the first Star Trek series to be on air in 12 and a half years? Something like that. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, 
Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the large conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trekfm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter, Duncan at Barrett's Books, and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and Facebook. So thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended, all right. Two films and two episodes in particular that we're going to kind of be comparing and, and discussing. The first one will be Starship Mine from the sec from the from the sex from the. <laughs> Start that again. Uh, <laughs> from the sex, the sex season, season, yeah. Mm. They didn't get around to filming this was that. Famously, Patrick Stewart wanted the sex and shooting. And <laughs> this was the sex season, then they, they did the shooting season. Yeah, the sex season. You know, the one after. Wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, start that bit again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>